Welcome everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're just about to start. So do meanwhile, feel free to introduce yourself in the chat box. Let us know where you're tuning in from um, and make sure to select uh, everyone if you have the option in the chat function. It's great to Great to see people are joining. Um, and my name is Joanna Hewitt-James. I'm the executive director of Freedom United, and I'm going to be hosting our event today. Thank you uh, for being here. This is a topic that a lot of people in our community have addressed in relation to various campaigns. Um, some of our community members have taken a position uh, on boycotts and others have raised, raised questions. So for that reason, We've organized this event to explore the topic and answer as many of your questions as we can. So to ensure that we're all starting on the same page, um, I just want to give a little background on boycotts. So it's an act of nonviolent voluntary abstention as an expression of protest. And it's usually for moral, social, political or environmental reasons. And the purpose is to inflict economic loss on the target or to indicate moral outrage and ultimately to try and compel the target uh, to alter an objectionable behaviour. Um, when a, something like that is done by a government, it's known as a sanction, um, but also we're seeing increasing use of it, for example, uh, the import ban on um, goods produced with forced labour, um, through the Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act in the US and other discussions uh, on other um, forced labour products there are discussions in, in various jurisdictions. Interestingly, um, however, boycotts and the threat of a boycott um, doesn't actually uh, always necessarily have an effect on sales. So is it good or is it bad? And what does it mean for the workers who are producing the goods that we are talking about boycotting. So relevant particularly to the Freedom United community is one of the earliest recorded boycotts, and that's against sugar in the 1700s, um, and in protest at slavery and the horrific conditions in which it was grown and produced in the Caribbean. Um, this momentum started to build in the mid 1700s, and by the 1780s, British and American Quakers launched an extensive and unprecedented campaign against slavery and slave labor products. So the goal was to create a broad non-denominational anti-slavery movement, and it culminated in a boycott of slave-grown sugar, um, which in, by uh, 1791 was supported by nearly half a million people in Britain. Uh, and I think that's a really powerful example. I think it's very hard to imagine cutting out and giving up sugar completely. What it is, is an incredibly effective way uh, spreading the word of a campaign, sitting down to a cup of tea and not offering your guest uh, sugar is a great way of starting a conversation about what's happening somewhere which may feel like very far from uh, daily life. So, but are boycotts and import bans always the best thing and can we actually have an impact and end forced labor and slavery by using them well we're really really lucky today to be joined by two wonderful guest speakers 
Um, so Johar Alam, he's our, the Force Labour Coordinator at the Workers' Rights Consortium. Um, she's a Uyghur activist and she's campaigning alongside Freedom United and a um, big broad coalition of organisations calling for an end to the state-sanctioned forced labour system in, a Uyghur, in China's Uyghur region, or um, which has been called a, a genocide. And, and Johar is incredibly busy. She's um, been talking about this issue in many different forums, and we're very grateful to have her today. And we're also joined by Alison Gill, the forced labour director of Global labour justice international labour rights forum um, and they're working to hold businesses accountable for labour rights violations so a big welcome to to both of you and we're looking forward to getting this conversation underway before i do that i'm going to just present an example uh, from my own experience um, and then we'll um, enter into a conversation and we'll have a q a session where you also have the opportunity to present any questions you have and you can put your hand up and we can unmute you so you can actually ask the question yourself verbally and you don't just have to write it in the chat box. So if you do go ahead there and write it and we can also call on you in that way um, if you would like to speak. We'll be live tweeting the event and we're using the hashtag boycott bans. And we're also currently live streaming on Facebook. So please share your questions for our panel in the comments there. Or if we're joining on Zoom, you can also share them in the Q&A section. So the event is being recorded. It'll be available on our YouTube channel and on our website, website later. So you can also go back and refresh um, it or, or, or um, share it with uh, friends and colleagues. So before we start the conversation, I do want to speak briefly about a topic that um, I've been involved in and actually one that Alison also knows very well and that is the case of force the state-sponsored system of forced labour in the, in Uzbekistan's cotton industry. Um, I think it's a really interesting example when we think about looking at boycotts because we um, organised as a coalition under the cotton campaign a pledge where we asked retailers, um, so high street names that um, many of us know, to sign up to not knowingly source cotton from Uzbekistan. And at this time, Uzbekistan had a state-sponsored system that mobilized well over a million adults and children into the field every year in preparation for the growing season and for the harvest. And this was something that was so endemic and um, widespread that it really felt like something that could wasn't going to be ended easily. Cotton was a big revenue earner for the government. And so we wanted to end it. And we thought um, one of the techniques that we used was uh, through our partners at Responsible Sourcing Network, a pledge to ask retailers to sign up. Now, many retailers are not buying cotton directly from Uzbekistan. They're often buying it through other countries where it's being processed uh, eventually into yarn. However, a lot of uh, companies signed onto this pledge and it created a, a lot, it really focused attention on what was happening in Uzbekistan and awareness amongst within industry increased substantially. Um, 
Now, whilst of course there's a lot of other activities that were being run alongside the, the pledge, I think, um, and of course it'd be great to hear Alison's view, I think the pledge was a really important way of galvanizing attention and creating um, an interest in the um, in the government and in, in, in the um, authorities to actually address this problem. Now, the government at the time was definitely not doing anything about it, but when there was an opportunity um, to do something different, when the leadership changed, then this was something that they could do to differentiate themselves from the previous regime. And the new government made a commitment to end the forced labor system in Uzbekistan. And today we see much less use of forced labor. The levels of um, uh, widespread state-sponsored forced labor where children are taken out of schools, where employee, employees are taken out of banks and hospitals, that doesn't happen anymore. We're not saying that all forced labor has ended. There's still work to be done, but the change now compared to previous years is definitely significant. And I think the attention that the ban or the pledge to not knowingly source cotton from Uzbekistan had was really significant, I think, in that change. So um, we we'll can come back to that and I'd love to also um, explore it a little bit more. But first of all, I want to bring our attention to um, what's happening um, in the Uyghur region. Now, that's we have, uh, I think a lot of you may well know that we have a campaign. We'll share it as well in the chat. But I first want to turn to um, Johar and ask if you can give an overview of the progress that's been made by governments to address Uyghur forced labour in supply chains. And how can import bans be an effective means to pressuring companies to take steps to eliminate forced labour? Uh, thank you, Joanna. Um, as we know, as many of uh, us know that since 2020, there were several, uh, several uh, WRO, the withhold release order, were being issued by the U.S. Custom Border Protection, uh, whether the um, in in September 2020, the the computer parts uh, from a company in Anhui or the hair uh, hair production coming from the Uyghur region, and in also in January 2021, there was also regional withhold release order on tomato and on cotton. And then um, more recently, we know that the solar panel products can, containing from Hoshine, um, uh, from Hoshine um, uh, company uh, from in China is also banned from uh, from entering the U.S. market. And uh, starting from June 21st of this year, uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act went into effect. Um, and this, this legislation, I would say it's unprecedented in the US. Uh, it's, it's one of the strongest legislation, legislation on forced labor, forced labor since the 1930s. And with, with this law, the US, uh, the US government uh, was uh, will employ a risk-based approach, which prioritizes the highest risk goods based on current data and reports, and 
as we know, currently the goods that are at highest risk of being tainted by forced labor, labor are those imported directly from the Uyghur region into the United States. And no matter which sector uh, uh, in this law, no matter which sector and with the rebuttable presumption, uh, which is pretty unique of this legislation, uh, with the rebuttable presumption in place, any goods, whether it is mined, produced or manufactured in any sector made in part and in whole from the Uyghur region is being banned from being admitted to the U.S. border unless there is a, a clear and convincing evidence, uh, which I really hope the, you know, uh, the U.S. government has a very high standard for what is considered as clear and convincing evidence. So the law, also, this law, also prohibits uh, importation of products that are made by an entity listed on the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act's entity list, which uh, some of the entities mentioned in the entity list does not have to be from the Uyghur region, uh, operating in the Uyghur region. They could be related to a company that is operating in the Uyghur region. And any product that are made in those, uh, uh, from those companies that are mentioned in the entity list are also banned from uh, being admitted to the U.S. And outside of the U.S., in the U.K., we, uh, I mean, in, in EU, we know that there was uh, the, uh, uh, the new resolution on force labor was introduced. It hasn't passed yet, um, uh, though uh, it's not the exact type of legislation that as a Uyghur advocate that I would be very satisfied with since it doesn't have a regional focus. It also, also doesn't have a, um, um, a remediation uh, 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 um, uh, um uh, focus as well. So, um, but I am still very happy that the EU had stepped up uh, on this matter. Um, when I when I emphasize the need of regional focus is because, to be honest, in a lot of Western countries, legislations regarding forced labor goods already existed in the past. Uh, apparently, it did not work. That is why Uyghur forced labor tinted goods have been admitted into their markets in those countries' markets. That is why, with a regional focus, it's extremely important to narrow down the focus. Uh, with we know, according to Chinese government's own statistics, uh, with with their white paper released in 2020, we know that annually there are 1.29 million population going through so-called vocational trainings uh, in the Uyghur region, and and also with the level of surveillance taking place. And it's a, especially in the Uyghur region, the forced labor situation is systematic and state-sponsored, which is very unlike unlike other forced labor practices that we, we often would imagine in other countries. And when it is, when the surveillance, it is at that level and when auditing due diligence is, is impossible in this region, the complete, uh, 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 cutting ties of this region isn't very necessary. And that is the only way to guarantee that whether it's a company or a market, it's free of forced labor, because that is the only way to ensure it by cutting all of its ties at every level for a company at every level of their supply chain and for a country in any sector. So that is the only way. And we know that these, um, I am not very familiar with uh, other laws in other countries, but with the US, I know since June, uh, the Uyghur Force Labor Prevention Act went into effect uh, with this, a Wall Street Journal had mentioned, we know compared to last June, 
this June's uh, cotton gene sale had dropped 41%. And that is a significant amount of number for Xinjiang cotton sales. And we also know that the uh, CBP had um, uh, uh, targeted over $429 million uh, worth of uh, shipments coming from the Uyghur region in just June. And I think also, was it October or August? I am not very sure with the dates. There were um, more than 3,600 shipments were targeted and it's worth over $8 million. And that is that 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 really is very reassuring as a Uyghur individual who has her father in prison, who had two of her uncles been in re-education camps, has one of her cousins currently serving a 10-year prison. It is very heartwarming that countries are willing to hold, you know, around the world, especially the U.S., is willing to uh, hold the Chinese government accountable for such inhumane actions towards my people. And and I just need to emphasize that I, re I really hope, you know, the U.S., the U.S. government, the CBP holds a very high uh, evidentiary, uh, evidentiary standard for the as earlier mentioned, the clear and convincing evidence. Uh, I, I hope it can, the high standards can be held and what can be considered as sufficient to rebut the presumption that goes from the Uyghur region are produced with forced labor and also um, the vigorously implementation of, of this law with respect to reports from other countries, third party countries as well, since we know that with reports already existed, um, we know that it has happened in the past that countries redirect their supply chain to elsewhere. They would still make, uh, make their products, uh, tie their products with forced labor and transfer it to other countries like Bangladesh, Indonesia, and Vietnam. And, and, and so um, in order to um, uh, um, let the CBP to really implement this law, uh, well, they need, really need to require supply chain transparency down to the raw material levels for importations that are at high risk of containing um, you know, content from the Uyghur region. And also the entity list that I mentioned earlier that current, currently are only a couple dozen and, uh, entities listed in this list. But we all know that there are hundreds of, uh, at least hundreds of companies that are complicit in in this um you know a human rights violation the forced labor uh violation state-sponsored forms of uh uh forced labor so the need of expanding this list of entities is very very necessary and you mentioned about Uzbekistan earlier Joanna I I, I like to note that we we need to realize that this is going to be a long-term strategy and in order to really make a tangible change in the Uyghur region, we cannot only look at the next three years or next few months, pressuring China, ending state-sponsored forms of forced labor is hugely, extremely difficult. And, and, and obviously China is a very powerful, powerful country and it has its own huge domestic market. So the economic pressure is not going to be as influential as it was with Uzbekistan or other countries. But however, the short-term strategy we know now is to create a significant global condemnation of this practice, of such practices, and also keep encouraging global corporations to end all links to
forced labor. That, that is the only way. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. You've actually given us some statistics that show that it can actually have an economic impact. Uh, doesn't always, but it certainly can have an economic impact. You're absolutely right. I, in my incredibly short summary, um, it did make it feel like the process of getting change in Uzbekistan was quite quick, but <laughs> as Alison was testifying, it took a long time. I think um, well over a decade. And it probably is a lot easier than it is to leverage influence like that in um, China. But the state-sponsored aspect, as you right, as you rightly point out, is, is is a long haul battle, and it's not one to be won easily. And I think you also make a really good point about uh, principles. And of course, you know that's a lot of the motivation for uh, us to exercise our choice as consumers. Is the fact that we don't want to be supporting such a system we want to make that clear um but i think that actually brings in uh, the other side which i'd like to ask alison about and and that is i mean your experience and holding global corporations accountable um what are some of the risks of import bans or like the one that uh johar uh, described and big large-scale boycotts and their potential to undermine workers' collective bargaining or workers' rights. Thanks, Joanna. And uh, hello to everybody who's joined. I'm really excited to see so many people interested in this topic. Thanks for the solidarity. Um, I want to start by just making a distinction um, between state-imposed forced labor. Well, let me, let me zoom out a little bit. Like the point of a boycott is Joanna's mentioned in her introduction is to change something right to improve conditions maybe in a concrete supply chain or to shift a supply chain um, essentially let's talk about labor motivated boycotts as opposed to environmental or other motivated boycotts in a in a boycott or or an import ban that is motivated by labor concerns presumably the the point is to make things better for the workers and so we're looking at really trying to improve the practices, you know, pressure a company or pressure a supply chain to improve the practices in that supply chain by showing them what the consequences of their bad behavior um, can be. Uh, you know, if that if they continue bad labor practices, the consumers will stop buying their products. Or in the case that Jauhar discussed uh, in the Uyghur region or in the Uzbekistan case, it's really to to supply. They want to distinguish between situations where companies potentially in dialogue with workers or with CSOs or with trade unions um, can do remediation, where there can be due diligence, real investigations in those supply chains, and then some actors in those supply chains can take real steps to try to change. Um, it can be that the workers can be bargaining and trying to themselves either strike or call for boycotts or bargain with the employer um, to try to change the conditions. It can be that a, a multinational corporation that is sourcing from a country can put pressure on the abusive, you know, say, supplier in that country. That I want to contrast with, with the Uyghur region crisis or with the Uzbekistan state-sponsored case, where you have essentially a systemic problem. And in both of those cases, they are government-sponsored, government-imposed forced labor um, in really um, 
comprehensive rights abuses that make it impossible for workers themselves to take action because they risk, you know, even speaking to supply chain auditors or investigators poses risks to those workers. Um, in many cases, those workers are literally in detention or under surveillance or otherwise restricted actually from freedom of movement, from retaining their own documents or being able in any way to communicate, report on or seek remediation for abuses that they face. So in that second group, you know, we are really looking to shift supply chains away to tell multinational corporations that they cannot ethically be connected to those systems um, because the, the pressure that we are seeking to exert is on the governments that are imposing those systems of abuse. And so we really view those situations, you know, to get to your question, Joanna, of risks, um, the risk to those workers is, is happening now. They are in abusive working conditions. They're in conditions of forced labor. They can't take they, they can't take collective action themselves, the Chinese government directly to stop the abuses. So we are looking to shift those supply chains away. In the what I want to talk about now is to get at the question you asked, this is probably more in the in private sector uh, forced labor conditions, which we know exists. You know, their forced labor is incredibly prevalent in, in supply chains. Um, where a forced labor enforcement action, say the enforcement of an import ban or potentially a broad-based consumer boycott could potentially have risks for workers in those supply chains. So one feature of import bans and I think labor-motivated boycotts is that they really focus on identifying forced labor or forced labor products made with, or, you know, lab products made with forced labor. So in the U.S. U.S. context, we have the Tariff Act, which prohibits any good made with forced labor from entering U.S. commerce. Um, in that, that is a law enforcement action enforced by law enforcement officers, Customs and Border Protection, um, which identifies these goods and then can prevent them from coming into U.S. ports or seize them or stop them or detain them at U.S. ports. But in that law enforcement action, um, Customs and Border Protection doesn't do the same kind of analysis that we as practitioners might do, representatives might do, which is to look at all fundamental labor rights together as being mutually reinforcing. So that would include the right to freedom of association and the right to collective bargaining, for example. And, you know, it is our contention that in fact, freedom of real freedom of association and the real right to collective bargaining are the best prevention for forced labor as well as the best solution for forced labor. It's like the vaccine and the cure all in one. Um, because when workers themselves have a voice in determining their own conditions and enforcing those conditions through bargaining and through freedom of association, then they can achieve conditions that will, that will help ensure that they're free from forced labor conditions. So forced labor is also you know, the worst form of labor exploitation, but it exists along a spectrum and situations can move and be quite fluid from forced labor conditions to other situations that might be exploitative labor, but don't quite rise to the level of, of being forced labor. And so this will all come together, I promise, but there, this is, brings up a lot of really interlinked issues. So the, the US Tariff Act, for example, the major import ban provision that existed before the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, it doesn't have any kind of remedy provision in it. So it is just a law enforcement action that is seeking to stop goods made with forced labor from entering the US. 
But as part of its implementation practice, Customs and Border Protection looks for evidence that the conditions of forced labor had to some have to some degree been remediated in deciding whether they're going to stop preventing those goods. Jahar mentioned the WRO, that's a withhold release order, which is the technical term for a, a good that is subject to an import ban or a company that is subject to an import ban. So when there, when Customs and Border Protection is looking to decide whether or not conditions have improved such that they, such that they can modify or remove the WRO or the import ban, they do look for some evidence of remediation, even though the tariff act doesn't have this baked in. So if wages had been withheld from workers, they might look for evidence of repayment of wages, for example. Um, so CBP, Customs and Border Protection, looks at the indicators of forced labor when making its determinations. And the indicators, so forced labor, forget four prongs legally. The first is, is that the labor is involuntary. And the second prong is that a worker would suffer a consequence, a negative consequence, or fears a consequence if they refuse. So it's not they are not paid or that. That is not a that is not part of the definition of forced labor. It's that they are in, in, in involuntary labor and suffer and would suffer fear or consequence if they refuse to work. But it's really hard to see it in the field. It can be quite hard for investigators to actually see what it looks like because we forced labor is more than than what we think of it when we think about chattel slavery or something. It can be really abusive working conditions where workers have no agency and are subjected to um, really severe forms of exploitation. Open is forced labor because it can be quite hard for practical reasons to really understand that from talking to workers or from viewing it as an outsider. So we think it's positive that, that Customs and Border Protection is looking at these indicators, but this is where this is where the sort of implementation meets the limits of what law enforcement can do. Um, if they see that there are indicators of forced labor and they decide to impose an import ban, once they have done that, to to decide that the import ban needs to be lifted, they, they need to then look for evidence that those indicators have been completely remediated, that they're gone. There are very few workplaces in the world that are free of any of the indicators of forced labor. I mean, because the indicators are quite broad and by themselves, they're not dispositive. So it's things like um, poor living and working conditions, um, violence, threats of violence, abuse, sexual harassment uh, and abuse, um, debt bondage, having your uh, retention of identity documents, restrictions on freedom of movement, and things like that. So this is this is really now I'm now I'm getting to the crux of the story. Um, we we think as practitioners that collective bargaining, freedom of association, are what creates real remedy for forced labor, not just simply you know evidence that the wages have been repaid, but because. Customs and Border Protection, for example, doesn't look at all of the labor rights together holistically. They're looking really, did we identify forced labor? And now can we identify that that forced labor has somehow been addressed? They're not looking at, are there systems in place 
to determine, uh, are there systems in place that would help prevent, identify, and remediate forced labor going forward? So to try to make this make some sense, I'm going to give you a very concrete example that happened just a couple of months ago. Um, there is a supplier factory, a garment factory in Nachi, uh, in Tamil Nadu, in, which is a region in India where there's a lot of garment uh, garment factories. And it's a, it's a region that is known for having fairly poor working conditions and a lot of abusive conditions. Customs and Border Protection imposed an import ban on garments and apparel made at a factory called Nachi Apparel in Tamil Nadu, um, where there had been long-standing problems of gender-based violence and harassment. Um, really well documented. Um, the situation had gotten to the point where a garment worker was killed by her supervisor after months and months. Women were potentially killed or allegedly killed by their supervisors. Um, the union, the trade union, the independent trade union that had been trying to organize workers at the factory was restricted from organizing there. Uh, and there were really, um, it was a very abusive working situation. However, the workers themselves had never identified the conditions as rising to forced labor. They were really focused on gender-based violence and harassment, as was the local union. And so with support from labor stakeholders, including our organization, we bargained for and won with, with the union there, um, an enforceable agreement with the brands that bought that bought garments at that factory. It's called the Dindigal Agreement. It's a really landmark, groundbreaking agreement that um, put in place training program run by the union and run by labor. Um, by the brands themselves because they're legally binding provisions that the brands had to agree to cut their orders if the company didn't fulfill its obligations under the agreement. So this is like the gold standard. It was collectively bargained for. It was won by the workers that was really designed to prevent and remedy um, these abuses over the long term. However, out of the blue, we found, <laughs> we found that Customs and Border Protection had imposed an import ban on this factory, as opposed to one of the many other factories in the region that also have problems. And this, I'm not sure why that happened. We don't have a lot of insight into that. But this import ban actually put that agreement at risk. And it put those workers who had fought for and won that agreement at risk. It put their jobs at risk. Um, they Because the goods, Customs and Border Protection started blocking goods that were coming in. And so the factory was losing money. It was about to lay off uh, thousands of workers. And so it was sort of an existential threat. Um, and it, the other thing that I think that is important to identify is that here we have both the supplier as well as the brands, you know, none of whom are typically known for their good, you know, their good, their good behavior, um, who had agreed to participate in this program and had agreed to enforce it. And so if brands and suppliers look around and see that even engaging in real preventative pro prevention programs doesn't protect them from, you know, an import ban or a boycott, then there's no point right? If they can't sell their products anyway, then there's no point for, to put themselves in the line. So it, it put those jobs at risk, and it also put this kind of agreement, which we call an enforceable brand agreement, at risk. Fortunately, in this case, we were able to provide evidence 
evidence uh, together with the local union in the factory, we were able to provide evidence to Customs and Border Protection to show them how the agreement was working, how it had already remediated abuses, and it had systems in place to do it going forward. So we got a good outcome. Within a couple of weeks, they lifted the import ban. But this is where I think a sole narrow focus on forced labor enforcement can in some cases undermine rights. And so the takeaway here is engage with workers where possible, follow their lead. Um, if there are credible trade unions, real representative uh, worker organizations, they're the ones that should be driving decisions about whether or not there is a boycott necessary or what other measures. So I would say, and say what's necessary to make change. Where it's not possible to do that, like in the situation that Jauher described or in the situation Joanna described in Uzbekistan, there, I think um, we really do need to pressure at a much higher level and these broad-based either boycotts or pressure to move supply chains are really effective. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alison. It's really useful that you took a step back and just guided us through different contexts in which we are looking at forced labour occurring and an understanding of what we're even looking for, what the ways in which forced labour emerges of different indicators. Um, and to hear about the specific experience um, and actually how a boycott actually undermine progress towards what we're ultimately seeking, which is decent working conditions. I think that's really useful to understand. And I like the way that you're also distinguishing between um, examples where we can engage with workers to create change and where we can't. And I think it kind of leads me on to um, a question around um, maybe high profile events and maybe when is it right or is it helpful to have high profile um, campaigns to boycott? Um, one thing on my mind is in Qatar, the World Cup is now underway um, and there's been a lot of attention on the conditions for migrant workers in Qatar. And there's been um, calls for a boycott of um, Qatar, either you know, from supporters also, um, you know, pressure on uh, football teams and football associations who thus far there's not a wide there is not a widespread boycott by any means um in this case the government of Qatar is working with the international labor organization there's been some uh, improvements in uh, the legislative framework there in Qatar it's been very slow to see the improvements that we want to see on for the workers the migrant workers and I think that it's sometimes quite frustrating, right? Waiting to see change happen. And so in the meantime, you know, what do you do? Um, I think the other example to bring up is the campaign that we also um, have be, all been involved in, targeting the International Olympic Committee in the run-up to the Olympics in um, Beijing. And I want to ask you, um, Johar, do you think... Um, it's a it's a those kind of events are useful do they have value is it is it um helpful for drawing attention to rights abuses i mean and what kind of sort of effect can it have in um especially for countries i think like um alison distinguished countries that are actually engaging in forcing people in a state sponsored system into exploitation 
or are there other circumstances where actually these sorts of campaigns can be more effective do you think in your opinion so this is a great question. Um, oftentimes, as worker rights consortium, we rarely encourage, well, we never encourage doing boycotts because boycott, it's, it can be a wonderful tool, but it also it's a double side daggers, which uh, a large scale boycott could cause um, lots of um, orders losing for, for companies, for factories, and could cause, um, you know, workers already producing manufacturing clothes, uh, um, uh, uh, garments, but then ended up not getting paid. But in terms of um, state sponsored forms of forced labor, uh, especially in, in China, in the previously, whether it's medical doctors or soccer players or singers or farmers or fruit sellers on the street with their little trucks, it's it's by their choice. But um, the Chinese government used this term of poverty alleviation program and combating religious extremism program which strike hard all the weavers and just label them as um, either extremists, uh, separatists, they need rescue, they need uh, they need rescue by the Chinese and by putting them in workplaces so with working in those factories, their brains can be washed, their minds of extremism can be can be gone uh, by, by those forced labor practices. So this is the common tactic or common uh, talking points that the Chinese government often use. So uh, in this case, I wouldn't use the term boycott, but um, oftentimes when consumers, when they're aware, when they're aware of such, uh, you know, abuses are happening, especially in the Uyghur region, not only forced labor is occurring, uh, it intersects with other types of egregious human rights abuses, such as family separations, surveillance, gender-based sexual violence and harassments, um, and, and, and um, um, forced sterilization. So when consumers are aware of the products that they're buying uh, are made under such uh, circumstances, I think most consumers would not feel comfortable with spending um, money on those products. So in that case, when they would uh, often when consumers are aware, they would prefer to choose a products they know are ethically made. And therefore, a such boycotts event would automatically happen, uh, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And with 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 the Uyghur uh, forced labor cases, is as I mentioned earlier, the only way to ensure their products are made or exported uh, into the country are made or without uh, not made by Uyghur forced labor is by cutting their ties with the Uyghur region completely at every level of their supply chain. And the it, if companies themselves do not do it proactively, consumers will have to do something to push companies to make that right decision. If consumer powers are not enough, the governments should be forced to uh, place, uh, you know, uh, legislations like the one in the U.S. with Forced Labor Prevention Act or whether other types 
types of maybe even better, um, you know, a forced labor bans that has has it all that has a remediation, uh, you know, focus and has the regional focus and 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 that has the uh, you know focus on uh, transparent uh, supply chain transparency. So um, I would say yes, boycott events are a double side daggers, but in the case of the Uyghur region. I'm going to restate it again. Um, there's this term uh, I used to hear it a lot in Chinese. If it's important, say it three times. Like the only way to ensure that we are not buying, I'm just going to say it very loud and clear. The only way for us to ensure ourselves are not purchasing or are not using items, whether it's clothes, your cup, your computers are made by we for cyber is from is by not purchasing anything from that region. Yeah, I'll just say it one more time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very important to be clear. And I think that's a great proverb um, that we should do exercise to get make sure the points of God are across. I think you know, all of us here, I I think it would be important to be buying products that are at a high risk of being produced with forced labor so Alison um can consumer boycotts actually be effective um you know can you give us a bit of a bit of a sort of snapshot uh, before we launch into questions from the audience uh, on that topic yeah um I'd love to talk a little bit about this I'll be much quicker than before but I, I can I can build a little bit on the points that Joe was making about the um, some of the events boycotts. So like when we're talking about, you know, the Olympics in, in Beijing, we also like part of the pur purpose of the boycott, of course, is to avoid using products that were produced with forced labor, which in this case was actually Olympic branded IOC branded merchandise, right? They had not done due diligence on the supply chains that were producing things with the Olympic logo on them. So the Olympic Committee, International Olympic Committee was already violating not only its own policy, but also, you know, the ethical <laughs> obligation not to use forced labor. Um, but also more broadly, we, we don't want to allow these major um, sort of landmark events to be used as a kind of squirting so that we can't allow a moment to go by in which Beijing can pretend that it is not abusing the rights of millions of Uyghur citizens. Um, and we don't want to allow international corporations to profit from that silence. We don't want to allow them to participate in that silence. And we don't want to allow them to um, prevent journalists from reporting on the abuses as part of their coverage of the event. So in this case, you know, we, we not only look at the International Olympic Committee and what it's producing for sale, but we also might look at the sponsors. You know, if there are international corporations that are sponsoring this, then we want to pressure them to ensure that the situation, you know, that there is free speech, that there, that there, there can be reporting, that they aren't profiting from forced labor or using forced labor in their goods. And then, you know, if if we're unhappy as consumers with their response, I think it's probably safe to boycott, you know, Coca-Cola to send them a message. And not implicating Coca-Cola, but I'm just saying if they were to sponsor a major a major event and not um, adhere to the kind of call of activists, it, you know, a boycott might be an effective way to say we're unhappy with how you acted in you know the Beijing context. I don't think we'd be putting a lot of Coca-Cola jobs at risk, 
but we would be sending an important message to that company. So I think the issue of consumer boycotts, especially in this really targeted um, way around events can be quite effective. Um, and I think there it's important to send those messages as consumers that this is not about um, boycotting the Olympic athletes or you know soccer because we're proud of what the athletes can do and we all want to enjoy it. But we, we can't allow that enjoyment to cover up abuses and to allow us all to forget about what's happening. So, um, and more broadly to your question, I mean, ideally, I think decisions to boycott over labor conditions would be driven in some way by workers. Um, and we already talked about some of the risks that a truly effective consumer boycott could have to workers on the ground. Um, but where that engagement is impossible, where the workers themselves are calling for it, yes, I think we're, I think boycotts can be effective. Um, we've already talked about the situation in Uzbekistan and the Uyghur region. Those are very clear examples. And we really ultimately want consumers to demand that companies stop sourcing from abusive governments or from abusive regions. Um, we also want to demand that companies are not only making claims that they have zero tolerance for modern day slavery or zero tolerance for forced labor, but we want them to demonstrate it by mapping their supply chains, tracing their supply chains, um, and being really transparent about where they source from. It's not enough you know, for them to kind of close their eyes and say, you know, we've relied on audit reports and we're fine. We really need them to know down to the raw material level where the goods that they are using are coming from um, so that they can be sure that they're not profiting from or supporting these systems of forced labor. Um, forced labor fashion uh, is a great website that has done a lot of great work on fashion companies. I encourage you all to look at it. It's really fun too. Um, but they've really put a spotlight on, on um, what some individual companies are doing with regard to Uyghur forever. Um, and hopefully these actions that we stem so forced labor and to do that, they're going to have to change, take action. And sometimes that action costs them money, but it's still, that's their obligation. And then the final thing I would say, so we have to vote for, um, you know, leaders that we think are going to, going to try to um, implement the principles that we care about. Perhaps actually you can expand a bit upon that, because one of the questions that we receive that we've had from our community, Anne, um, which I think really touches on this, is, is she says that from what I've read, there's no perfectly safe brand of chocolate or cocoa. And if we don't boycott, what is the alternative? We either support these practices at some percentage rate or we boycott completely. And you know, her concern is that she says until I'm given a hundred percent guarantee of no child labor and no deforestation, I will not buy anything with cocoa in the ingredients. So what can we say to Anne about what what alternatives there are or what is the mm -hmm. right thing to do in that situation? Yeah, I think that's a super interesting question. And of course, I think people need to live their principles. So if that is the decision that Anna is comfortable with, that's a totally fine decision. I think the cocoa industry is a particularly interesting example because we talked a little bit, you know, in my case, in my 
discussion of the Nachi case in India, that was a specific supplier in a specific supply chain. In the Uyghur region, we are talking about a system-wide, region-wide problem that affects a huge range of commodities. And so those, those examples are kind of at either end. In the middle are sort of the example of cocoa, where you have a really problematic industry, um, basically unregulated or poorly regulated by the governments where that industry is taking place. So you have really weak labor enforcement, really weak um, labor inspectorates, no real um, steps taken against perpetrators or no real steps taken at the country level. And then you have multinational corporations that are sort of profiting from all of this. But if we are just to boycott, I don't know, one chocolate company or one, sorry, one, one supplier, you know, if either as consumers, we boycott a particular country or if Customs and Border Protection limits imports from one particular supplier, we aren't really moving that industry either at the country level or at the international level to be better. Where what I think boycotts can do is alert the industry to problems and hopefully get people at a table, you know, where real multi-stakeholder solutions can, you know, we can start to drive them. So I do think in this case, you know, boycotts and real awareness building around child labor practices in cocoa, for example, um, have been useful are this hopefully in pushing an industry. You know, we want Cadbury and Mars and all of the big companies that are, that are profiting from this to wake up, to understand that they can't go on profiting with their eyes shut from abusive practices. They are the, they're at the top of the food chain. They're the ones raking in the profits and they have no business outsourcing labor enforcement to underfunded labor ministries in their producer countries. That is just an abdication of responsibility. So we want them to be working together with labor stakeholders, with governments to really figure out how we can lift this whole industry up. That's a long-term thing. And I think boycotts can play a role in that, but but I think it's not a straight line. You know, a lot has to happen like it did in Uzbekistan. In addition to the pledge, there were a lot of other actions that underpinned it and helped lift it up. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and I think we've got a couple of questions open, but just before I move over there, I think one other that came in advance, just also is um, links quite well to that conversation. Um, and I think one of the challenges, of course, is whether it is um, a responsible thing for the individuals at the end of the supply chain. Now, we know, of course, that um, as Johar already explained, that in, in um, the Uyghur region, these are people who did have legitimate jobs and you're not actually taking away their employment by boycotting because they're part of, you know, they're forced into um, these so-called rehabilitation centers, essentially prison, where they are uh, producing goods. And that's very different. Uh, um, but I think in the cocoa example, um, it speaks to a question that um, Gerard asked, which is where, where will people get employment or food to feed their children and boycotts hurt the working poor and seldom affect the rich. And I think, um, Joel, you, you did speak to that earlier when you were talking about uh, workers' rights consortium's policy. And, and is that a, a lot of the motivation behind why you don't actually promote boycotts in many situations? So oftentimes we do not suggest boycotting, but we encourage uh, consumers to advise companies to do better. And we 
give uh, we provide service to companies to basically teach them how they can still profit without risking people's lives and without profiting off you know people's bloods and sweats and tears and um and we often encourage companies to stay so instead of completely exiting the region or uh, exiting uh you know to, to to leave the to leave the factory completely because it could risk um workers from losing jobs and 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 therefore um yeah oftentimes we would the WRC during our work, we would provide uh, whether it's um, uh, uh, talking to uh, talking to workers and see what's the best solution and and engaging with companies as well and to find a middle ground. Yeah, uh, that's really helpful to to just have that in our minds. And um, so that's really at the uh, at the end of the consumer so if we are looking to question richard's in the q a section richard and um, we'd like to invite you to ask them talk down the supply chain for companies responsible i'm going to open to you but, but before i introduce you richard um i just wanted to link it to the point that alison made earlier i think it was very pertinent when she talked about uh mars a big company with a I don't know, probably billions of dollars profit um, and the responsibility of the state that international, sorry, to ensure that labor standards are being adhered to. Um, I think, uh, Richard, you sh should be able to unmute yourself and ask your question yourself. Please have a go. You have to put your hand up here. Yeah, that's it. Great. And then unmute. That's it. Hi, thanks. Oh. Yep, we can hear you. Right. Um, yeah, my question was really about how far down the supply chain can we hold companies responsible? Um, and, and similarly, how indirectly can we hold companies or states responsible? Because there have to be kind of limits, otherwise. Um, I, I mean, the, the um, Football World Cup in Qatar is a good example. We're hearing every day, we're hearing new, yeah, so the, the IOC are claiming that it's uh, carbon zero at the moment, and that's being challenged. There are all of the problems in um, the uh, deaths around the building of the construction of the sites, um, exploitation at all levels. Should we hold... Can we hold them responsible? Who do we hold responsible and how far down the supply chain or how wide out do we do we take this? Can we take it? I quick, yes, I will quickly respond to that. The, I'm mainly going to respond on the Uyghur regions case. For the Uyghur regions case, also as, as for Uzbekistan as well, I, I think it should be down to the raw material levels. Who's picking the cut? Not not just manufacturing who's picking the cotton cotton and who's making the cotton into you know fabrics and those we need to think down to the very you know raw material levels and oftentimes companies do not disclose those information and that is very crucial oftentimes when we think of the we were forced labor situation 
all started in 2017. No, weavers have been forced to pick cottons for, for decades. And, and you'll see elementary school kids are sent on school trip to pick cottons for, for, for once a while. And um, so, yeah, down to the raw materials. And I forgot the last second part of the question. Um, I got a little distracted with my own answer. Uh, Richard, would you mind re repeat your second part of your question, please? Yeah. It, it it's similar in a way, it's rather than how far down the supply chain, it's how far out, so indirectly. And the example I, I was thinking, because I'm, I'm uh, working around um, stopping forced organ harvesting um, in, the, in Xinjiang and against some um, Falun Gong practitioners. And, and I'm looking at my own university, I'm an academic, a UK-based academic, looking at the connect the links that my own university has in terms of research, in terms of bilateral agreements, visiting academics. Uh, and it's really difficult to, to eliminate any kind of uh, contacts anywhere at all. Yeah. So how far out do we go? What about a researcher that is jointly publishing, um, a, a UK researcher that is jointly publishing with, um, say, a Chinese academic who's based in uh, Xinjiang? Is that something that should be... Well Therefore, I think um, as consumers, we need to urge, push the companies to disclose uh, supply chain data down to their raw materials and legislation should include, you know, specific um, term to request companies to provide that information. And uh, in terms of um, um, uh, forced labor, I mean, for, forced organ harvesting, it is... It is a known practice to many in, in, in inside China, but I'm not going to, I'm not very comfortable with, uh, you know, commenting on that since it's not my expert area of expertise, but, uh, but I do, but I do know it has been widely reported. Um, and um, yeah, as I said, how far, the, how, how far the supply should go. Um, a little example, Oftentimes, when we think, oh, we ban the cotton production from coming into the U.S., but then we've seen, uh, you know, from from um, you know it, some import web import uh, data websites that cotton pulp was being imported into the country, and what are those cotton pulp are going to be made into? You know, either going to be toilet papers, baby be diapers it could be all kinds of things to to um you know the paper that you write on and it can be turned into many things and the cotton pulp it's the the straws itself is going to be made into the pulp and so so it doesn't matter what production what product it is down to the 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 beginning the root is the, the root is the problem and we should dig as deep as possible and and as consumers, we always have consumer powers, which is to urge companies to do the right thing. And not only they should not, uh, you know, claim that they do not source from that region, they should also prove it. Yes. I agree with that 100%. Um, and actually, I think as consumers, that's a big question for many of us. Is like, okay, so if we don't boycott or if we say we're not going to be like the Quakers in 1900 and just stop having sugar at all in our diet. 
certification systems um, actually viable. Cheryl, would you like to um, ask your question live? You should be able to unmute and join the conversation. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, I, that's why I put it. I, I wasn't I wasn't going to, but I will now. Um, yeah, so my concern, uh, I'm just really deeply concerned about this issue, even before it's you know had all the publicity, which it, which I'm glad it's getting out here. Um, and so I think of organizations like like equal exchange, and there's like like fair trade this, fair trade that. So my question is about: Are those organizations really helping? Um, producing effects that I guess I'd say I want to see as a consumer that is actually helping alleviate the, um, the suffering right. and the forced labor, all of those kind of things that go on in the supply chain. Thank so that's you. my um, question. Alison, perhaps you could respond to that. I'm sure you've got plenty yeah, of experience. Yeah, Cheryl, thank you so much for that question. I think you hit on the topic for the next seminar or the next webinar because I think the, the issue, and this gets a little bit to Richard's question too about how far do we go. I mean, supply chains are not designed by accident. They are specific economic models designed to put the power and the money at one end and the labor and the enforcement of labor abuses pretty far away. And so then you have a lot of intermediary actors like certification schemes, licensing, uh, fair trade certifi certifications and supply chain auditors that kind of profit off of this ecosystem. Um, and I, I think just to really be targeted about, on your question, um, I think with the fair trade and things like that, the, the proof, the devil is in the details and we really need to look under the hood at what those standards entail how those standards are being monitored and how they're being enforced. And some of them are kind of very light touch uh, greenwashing where you have an auditor that might go in once a year as a foreigner with a clipboard and doing a kind of tick box exercise that is paid for by you know, the supplier who's really gonna benefit from the clean bill of health. And in other cases, there are more robust and there's more training and there are more um, ongoing prevention mechanisms and engagement by the workers. For me, the gold standard is, you know, to what extent are the workers themselves involved uh, and to what extent are workers themselves empowered to monitor their own conditions and enforce real remedy for those, for any abuses that take place. So that, that's what I look for. Um, a lot of it is sort of greenwashy stuff. Um, but I would just really echo what Jawhar said in response to Richards. We expect companies to know, not just in Uzbekistan and the weaker region, we expect them to know all of their supply chains because they are the ultimate beneficiaries of those so supply I think, chains. I um, absolutely agree with you, Alison. But I, I think what the challenge is that um, Marie Clark Walker and actually Richard as well has in the questions or in the comments section is how the hell will we know like if this particular scheme is one that workers are involved in? I mean, are there any good resources where we can sort of say, okay, this is a scheme that's worthwhile us considering seriously and this one's not? I mean, in my experience, um, there isn't. And I think that's a real shame. And the um, desire to in somehow generate a scheme that looks good often is more 
prioritized or rather is prioritized over ensuring that actually conditions are good in the supply chain but is there any kind of this and joining us today to help make that differentiation or is it a case of having to go into the technicalities and look up what these schemes are actually all about um john i was just typing uh my answer to the chat box but um i would for the weaver force labor case i was going to propose um uh oh thank you for including the link and uh, there's the weaver force labor brand checker which you can download through your google chrome A banner will pop up say oh this brand might be tainted by legal forced labor do you start from it if you say no then it will redirect you to more information for slaver yes yes you just keep shopping and there are also for some like reformation island fisher who have it to you know to 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 clean their, there's another banner for those companies uh, to to pop up and say um uh, this company has committed to and we were forced labor you can keep it's free it's it's safe to shop and there's also a database done by jewish world watch uh, that has hundreds of companies um uh, documented in this company and showing their links and their ties to we were forced labor and how they're tied to it and showing the reference so i think um I, um both are very useful tools in terms of forced labor work and there's also for people who love love reading <laughs> there are also great reports like uh the aspi report from uh the i think the name is Uyghurs for sale from australian institute uh, australian policy institute did i say their name right um no australian strategic policy institute my apologies um and also laundering cotton and under broad daylight those uh reports on cotton productions a link to forced labor and solar industries linked to forced labor that's done by Sheffield Holland University so they're all great reports so for people who love reading um you know feel free to go um, um go 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 read thanks yeah. thanks I think um really great that the research has done the research is available the information is not um you know is at your fingertips um is there anything else Alison that speaks more broadly to um, forced labour violations globally and relates to the different standards we often see stamped on the front of products that are designed, of course, to reassure Yeah, I, I sort of struggle with this question as a consumer and also as an advocate, because I think as consumers, you know, I'm a mom, I have kids, like I need to be able to buy them clothes and I don't, I can't necessarily spend 15 hours researching the scheme, the certifications and the audits that went into those clothes. Um, so I really do think that the burden actually needs to be on companies. Yep. The burden shouldn't fall on Cheryl and Richard and all of us as busy, commerce, busy lives. We should be able to be confident that the companies that are ethical, which is why I say to vote, because we really have to be Call, you know, electing leaders that are going to demand that companies have binding due diligence obligations, not voluntary 
Fox guarding the hen house corporate social responsibility, mm -hmm. non-transparent, non-accountable kind of policies, but that they really have binding obligations to report, to put in place measures that would identify, prevent, remedy, and mitigate forced labor and other, other labor exploitation. So we are seeing some action on mandatory action on potential import ban moving in the EU as far as both of those things are other measures there as we are, our organizations are all doing. In the US, we have some strong legislation, but we have a real gap because we don't require companies to do human rights due diligence. Um, and so I think it's not an easy answer. I think it's a little bit unsatisfying. I wish there was a website where I could say, you know, these are all the good ones and these are all the bad ones. But but ultimately, you know, we have, I think we have to focus. Thank you. Thank you, Asim. Um, and I just wanted, uh, we're just going to wrap up uh, in a minute, but I just wanted to acknowledge uh, Gabrielle's question, although we um, won't have time to about it but i think it is an, a really important example for the discussion of boycotts which is the boycott of apartheid south africa and i think there's some like fantastically interesting things um that could be explored i could make a whole conversation just on that topic because i think in that case the boycotts were really effective uh and helping support the movement to end the apartheid system and i think also Alison's helpfully typing a uh, alongside so an answer might appear soon but I want to say thank you everybody for um, participating in the conversation uh, a big thank you to our speakers for taking the time to explain about the work that they're doing the how we should look and consider the different contexts in which we find forced labour and the different responses that are appropriate to those contexts and to remind you all to, of course, take action on those campaigns, uh, we put the links in the chat, we'll post them in the game, uh, particularly on the Uyghur for Sabre campaign and, and also the COCO campaign. We're going to upload this recording onto our YouTube channel and also put it on the website. If you've enjoyed it, please do share it with friends and consider making a regular donation to us so that we can organize more of these forward. And of course, do tell us as well what topics you'd like to hear about. Um, we're using the uh, hashtag um, boycotts, um, uh, what was it, boycotts, oh, I've just totally lost my place. I wrote it down. Um, it was, uh, but I think if you just ask us, that'd be really helpful as we can make sure we pick it up. So a big thank you uh, for joining us and um, I hope to see you all soon. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Joha. We appreciate it.